this is Kelly from Denver, Colorado, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So let's get started. I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on, by spreading the word, by recommending California Dreaming and listening groups, and of course, supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently about 25 exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to all of those episodes too. This week, we had a little bit of a jump in patrons, which is really great. And I'm still filling out thank you cards. I'm almost done, and I am going to go to the post office tomorrow morning to mail everything out to you guys. I'd like to thank new patrons, Sarah, Ruth K., M. Star, Laura B., Amy C., Bridget B., Christy S., Amy Y., Kara, Julie, and Lindsay C., I'd also like to thank April G, Tanya T, Raquel L, and Suni Lee N for increasing their support. And if you would like to make a one-time donation to help support the production of this show, you can do so through PayPal by using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for supporting us. In this episode... We are going to be discussing topics involving rape and sexual assault, and it is a sensitive subject matter. So I'm going to just delve right into it right now in this 102nd episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Rape, Lies, and Justice. Dreamers, I'm going to tell you a little story today about a young man named Brian, Brian Banks. A Southern California native, he was born July 24, 1985, in Los Angeles. He attended Polytechnic High School in Long Beach, and it is referred to as Poly for short. And if you are from around Southern California, or if you are familiar with college and professional sports, then you may have heard of Poly in the past, as countless standout athletes are alumni from that high school. Dozens of future Major League Baseball players, NBA basketball players, countless future NFL players, as well as 
notable tennis star Billie Jean King, along with other standouts in professional sports who went on to make a name for themselves. Not to mention numerous entertainers, including Snoop Dogg and Cameron Diaz, who has famously recalled that she used to buy weed from Snoop while they were in high school. Students from all over Southern California interested in pursuing a professional career in sports who want to be noticed by college scouts. Poly High is one of the places around here to get noticed, especially when it comes to football. Poly is a powerhouse. And Brian, who would eventually top out at six foot three or 1.91 meters tall and 250 pounds or 113 kilograms, was a standout in his position at linebacker on Polly's varsity football team. So much so that during his junior year, Brian made a verbal commitment to take his talents to USC and play for their celebrated football team. The numbers of USC alumni who have been drafted into the NFL are astounding, and the list includes a few first-round first-draft picks. Carson Palmer, Keyshawn Johnson, Ricky Bell, and of course, O.J. Simpson, who would go on to be arguably one of the greatest running backs of all time. Incidentally, his friend and slow-chase chauffeur Al Collings was drafted the following year, in 1970, in the first round, fifth overall. But anyway, to have USC interested in you to play football, possibly even before Brian even knew how to drive a car, is really impressive. And you know, this guy is going to go places in life. Brian was named Class of 2000 Juniors to Watch by Rival.com. So yeah, he was being noticed. Brian's future, like those of so many talented high school football players with their sights set on the fame and fortune of a career with the NFL, was so bright. USC was courting him. I mean, this guy was going to be a star. There's no doubt about that. All of it would be sidelined one summer afternoon in 2002 when a classmate of his, Winetta Gibson, reported to authorities that Brian raped her, that he dragged her behind the doors of a stairwell on Polly's campus and sexually assaulted her. The dragging her into the stairwell part also meant that Brian kidnapped Winetta. Despite the fact that Brian was only 17 years old at the time, he was facing some hard time as many as 41 years to life in prison. And as for rounding out his senior year at Poly, as for his future and likely full ride at USC, and as far as any hopes to ever play a single down of football in the NFL, all of that was over. Brian and Winetta were hanging out one afternoon at school He had actually known her for years, though she was a couple of years younger than him, a sophomore at the time. On this day, they went to a secluded area where the teens could have a bit of privacy. They began kissing, a little bit of touching, but that was as far as things went. 
According to Brian, he and Juanetta did not have sex. After making out for a few minutes, he went his way and she went hers. They did not have a fight. There was no tension or verbal confrontation. As far as Brian was concerned, the interlude ended well. He cracked a few jokes. They had laughed. It was fun. Just normal. As far as he knew, everything was okay. But before the day was over, Brian found himself under arrest and in jail. He was being charged with two counts of forcible rape and kidnapping. The victim, the young woman he had been playfully making out with earlier in the day, was Winetta. She said Brian raped her. And with that, life as he knew it was over. Brian was booted off the football team and expelled from Polly. Any hopes of playing for USC, any hopes for going to the NFL, it evaporated. The message needed to be sent loud and clear. There is absolutely zero tolerance for sexual assault and sexual violence, no matter how good you think you are on the football field. Now, dreamers, if you're thinking based on the wrist slaps we've seen as of late, like rapist Brock Turner, and this case we're talking about today having happened back in 2002, when the climate when it came to women and sexual assault and how things typically get swept under the rug when it comes to athletes, it couldn't have been any better 17 years ago than it is today. It probably wasn't, but it may be worth mentioning that Brian is black. So unlike Turner, who had the sympathies of a judge in his case on his side and was able to enjoy the privileges of being white and an apparently decent swimmer, enjoying a Stanford education and Olympic hopes, Brian wasn't going to stand a chance in the justice system. At least that's what he's thinking. Well, unless, of course, you're O.J. Simpson and happen to have the resources to hire yourself an all-star team of defense attorneys to pummel the prosecution's case against you with theatrics, drama, and catchphrases. No. Brian is not going to be able to afford a dream team. But he will be able to get his own attorney as opposed to a public defender. But the cost would be high. His mom, Leomia Myers, would end up having to sell her home and her car in order to hire an attorney to fight for her son. She believed in his innocence. Of course she did. Any mom would. So much so that she sacrificed everything she worked for, for her entire life, for Brian. Of it, she would say that she considered the sale of her home and the car as a thing that a mother should do. Everyone had turned their backs on Brian. Everyone except mom. Brian was arraigned on the rape and kidnapping charges and his bail was set at $1 million. So he was going to have to sit in jail. But despite that, early on in the case, things looked as though they could swing favorably for Brian. 
DNA swabs had been taken as a part of Juanetta's rape kit when she reported the assault as normal protocol. Well, when the L.A. County Sheriff's Office ran the testing on their swabs, the results were negative, as Brian insisted the results of the test would be. The lack of DNA evidence should have or could have been a very strong factor in favor of Brian's innocence. But DNA can be a funny thing. Sometimes it's the linchpin of a case. Sometimes the absence of DNA is overlooked or excused away as an anomaly. But when Netta reported that Brian raped her, what the swabs turned up nothing. No matter. Maybe he did not ejaculate. Maybe he pulled out. Maybe he wore a condom. Rape is rape whether he climaxed or not. So the fact that Brian's DNA did not test positively was irrelevant to the prosecution. Was the evidence lighting up with what Winetta told investigators? It must have to some extent because the district attorney was moving forward with the charges against Brian. They would be taking him to trial, confident, despite the negative DNA results, that they would win a conviction. Brian could very well be the perfect defendant, too. An easy win for the prosecutor on the case. And by perfect defendant, I mean he's young, he's black, he's very imposing at his size and weight, and he doesn't have the means to put up a solid defense. It is also worth noting that when Winetta initially came forward with the accusation that Brian had raped her, she at first confided in a friend at school through a handwritten note that was reportedly filled with misspellings. In part, her note said, He picked me up, and he put me in the elevator, and he took me downstairs, and he pulled my pants down, and he raped me, and he didn't have a condom on, and I was a virgin, and now I'm not. Later on, when Winetta went to authorities, she provided a much more detailed account of what happened. But later on, when she provided sworn testimony at Brian's preliminary hearings, she was drilled aggressively on the stand, which seems to be typical as to the way sexual assault victims are treated in court, which is in large part a reason why they often choose not to report, and that's a whole other issue. Anyway, in Winetta's preliminary hearing testimony, Brian's attorney noted that her story was inconsistent. She changed some of the details around and added other details that she didn't tell in her original report to police. Remember, dreamers, Brian adamantly, steadfastly denied that he raped Winetta. Their encounter was completely consensual and sexual intercourse never took place. But aside from his mom, nobody believed him. And it began to feel like even his own attorney didn't either. She may have. I'd like to think a defense attorney would not accept a client if he or she did not fully believe in their client's innocence. But this is the part of the nature of some lawyers. Guilt or innocence is inconsequential because it's a game that's played to either be won or lost. You have an adversary. You want to win no matter what. Would it help if an attorney believed in their client? Of course it would. It's not necessary, not particularly. 
All you have to do is be a better arguer than your opponent. And again, I point to OJ. His DNA all over all the things wasn't enough to overcome a group of well-paid attorneys. Well, after a year of sitting in jail waiting for trial, Brian's own attorney began to waver in her resolve, if she ever had any. Did she believe in Brian's innocence? She may have. What she didn't believe in was Brian's chances of receiving a fair trial because of the factors I listed, his race, his age, his size, and his attorney was African-American as well. She did not believe that she would be able to present a case strong enough to go against the word of Winetta because that's what this case was all about. He said, she said. Brian's attorney was able to convince him that it would be in his best interest to plead no contest. Essentially, a guilty plea to a crime that Brian insisted he was innocent of. He did not do this. He was adamant. But with the odds stacked against him, the possibility of facing 41 years to life in prison his own attorney lacking the confidence to advocate for him in a system that is historically biased against young men like him, he decided to take the advice of his attorney and entered a plea of no contest one year after the incident. And with this plea, instead of 41 years, Brian was looking at anything between 18 months to five years in state prison. Unlike rapist Brock Turner, Brian's judge threw the book at him, sentenced him to the maximum five years. In that moment, Brian described feeling completely filled with anger, not directed towards anyone in particular, just at the whole world. Brian was sent to serve out his time at Chino State Prison. Upon release, he would have some very strict parole terms, and he would be required to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life. Following Brian's conviction, Winetta filed a lawsuit against the Long Beach Unified School District, citing a lack of adequate security, and she would be awarded $1.5 million in damages when the school settled. Now that amount of $1.5 million is listed in Winetta's court filings and it's listed in numerous articles on this case. But I read later on that that is a mistake and the actual settlement amount was $750,000. But still, that's a good chunk of money. And again, just like that faithful afternoon where this all had started, Brian and Winetta went on about their lives, but this time, under very different circumstances. Brian, the former standout linebacker that once had the eyes of some of the best colleges in the country focused on him, was now a convicted rapist, serving out his five years in state prison. And Winetta, she's doing what she could to move forward with her life having survived the trauma of being kidnapped and raped and learning how to live in this new reality. 
and soon the dark time that fell over the storied high school for all of their prolific future athletes that once roamed those halls before and since faded into a distant memory. In 2007, when Brian was only 22 years old, he finished his sentence and was released with five years of very strict probation. He was required to wear an electronic ankle monitoring device, and as I said earlier, he had to register as a sex offender. And life again would go on. At least Brian was going to try to, anyway. And then one day in March of 2011, Brian was poking around on the internet looking for a job when, out of the blue, he received a friend request on Facebook. When he clicked on it, you can imagine his surprise to see it was actually the woman who had accused him of kidnapping and raping her almost nine years earlier. Winnetta Gibson. In the moment, he was stunned. He didn't know what to think as he sat there staring at the notification. He must have thought this was some sort of weird joke. He did not accept her friend request, but rather he decided to send her a message. He asked, Why would you friend request me? And her answer was, She was hoping they could let the past be in the past. Basically, water under the bridge. Let bygones be bygones kind of a thing. Okay. And Brian said she was pretty adamant about it. She really wanted to see him and to hang out or whatever. She didn't give him the impression that she had anything helpful to say or do considering what her accusations had done to his life. To Brian, what it seemed like Winetta wanted was to reconnect with him for some reason. All these years later, it was real matter of fact. How have you been? What have you been up to? What are you doing tonight? What are you doing tomorrow? Let's get together. Let's ponder this for a moment, dreamers. What is going on here? Almost a decade has passed, and Winetta is reaching out to the man she said violently kidnapped and raped her when they were teenagers. How does this appear to the rest of us looking in? Now, I'm no expert when it comes to intimate partner violence, but it is my understanding that there are times when survivors don't always cut off communication with their attackers, so I just want that to be made clear here. And when someone is sexually assaulted by an intimate partner, just because they continue to see or talk to their attacker doesn't diminish or lessen what occurred. It is very common for a survivor to continue having a relationship on some level with their attacker for any number of reasons. It could be they run in the same social circles and really don't want to draw attention to the fact that a violent event occurred between them. It might be out of fear or confusion, even being manipulated by their attacker or having bouts of self-doubt or self-blame. It's totally understandable and should never be used as a weapon to minimize what happened. Rape is rape 
And it doesn't matter if he or she makes contact with their attacker the next day or sends a text message or even accepts an invitation to meet for coffee. But Winetta's situation is a little bit different here because there had been a great deal of time and distance between herself and Brian since his arrest and subsequent conviction. And as far as the police, the district attorney, the prosecutors, and everyone in between is concerned, Brian Banks is a violent sexual predator, a very tall, large, imposing man who viciously raped his classmate. A young woman who it does not seem was exactly his girlfriend at the time, but definitely someone Brian had been intimately involved with on some level. He is a man she pointed her finger at and said, He forced me into a stairwell against my will and raped me and stole her virginity. And her accusations to his actions that day cost him his entire future. He was kicked off the football team, expelled from school, sent to jail at the age of 17. And any chance of getting that free ride to USC was gone, not to mention his chances of ever realizing his dream of becoming a professional football player in the NFL. Brian's life was destroyed because of Juanetta and what she said about him? No, because of his own actions, right? Because he did this. He deserves to lose everything. But why would she want to see him? And why is she so blasé about it? Shouldn't she be afraid, considering everything that happened? He spent five years in prison because he raped her. Did she really think he was going to be like, Oh yeah, let's be buddies now, it's cool. The whole ruining my life thing, nah, we're good. But Winetta isn't afraid or fearful. And she is disturbingly friendly. I can't help but make the comparison to Emily Doe. I read you her impact statement in episode 62. Is it likely that a few more years down the line that Emily is going to have the urge to suddenly check in on Brock Turner? You know, bygones be bygones, how you doing, what you been up to, want to grab a latte sometime? Is Emily going to want to suddenly have an itch to friend Brock Turner on Facebook and be like, hey, remember me, the unconscious girl from the dumpster the other night? Yeah, how's life? I seriously doubt it. And why do we doubt it? Because we heard Emily's words. We hung on every syllable of that impact statement. And we knew and understood what it meant to be her. And never in a million years would we believe that Emily would ever send Turner a friend request. Not in a couple years. Not in a decade. Not ever. No matter how much time passes, the trauma is persistent and forever. I even get triggered when I see Turner's stupid mugshot. Just looking at him makes me mad. But in the case we're talking about today, Juanetta does not appear to be phased at all by the fact that she's now talking to the man who assaulted her. She wanted to see him, hang out like old chums, Maybe the passage of time has lessened the fear 
and the distress that coming into contact with her attacker could have or should have triggered, at least for her. I can't imagine this is the norm. The passage of time might negate some of the trauma for survivors, but does it ever really truly go away? It's different for every survivor, but a sexual assault becomes a part of the fabric of who a person is, and it doesn't go away. Where it falls in the spectrum of a person's life depends on how it's been dealt with by each individual, how each person has been able to cope, if therapy was sought, if it helped, the support system of family and friends. I don't know. Men and women can get better and not allow the trauma to define them or their lives. Then we might be inclined to think, okay, maybe Juanetta wants to confront her attacker. Maybe there are some things she wants to get off her chest in order to be able to move past this once and for all. Maybe she wants an explanation or an apology, something to find a measure of closure. That makes sense to me, and the desire to do so outweighs any fears that she may continue to have in regards to coming face to face with her attacker again after all these years. So the plan would be to meet in a public place. Maybe she'll bring a friend along for support. Well, whatever Winetta's motivation was, Brian could hardly believe it. Just beside himself, that she actually reached out to him and was wanting to so casually do some catching up after she had come forward accusing him of rape, which ultimately dashed his football dreams and sent him to prison for five years. Which, of course, is exactly what should happen to sexual predators. It should have happened to Brock Turner, undoubtedly. But in our case here, Brian was younger and facing so much more time than Turner despite Brian being a minor and Turner being an adult. And all this can be attributed to the racial biases ingrained in the justice system. And I usually tend to tread carefully around topics such as these, but it's pretty much a proven fact that if you take one black defendant and one white defendant, all other things being equal in terms of the charges they are facing, chances are the white defendant is going to fare much better than the black. Anyway, getting back on track... Brian could not believe that she messaged him. What in the world could the two possibly have to say to one another? Well, dreamers, Brian has insisted that he did not rape Juanetta. There was no evidence anything of the sort happened. They had an encounter, but according to Brian, it was consensual and ended on a positive note. Despite the fact that he went ahead and pleaded no contest to the charges he was facing, his choice was driven purely by the fact that as a black man, he did not believe he was going to win his case. Everybody had turned on him and threw their complete support behind his accuser, with the exception of his mom, even his own attorney, for whom mom sold off everything she had in this world to pay for, convinced him that he could not beat the system, so he settled on the lesser of two evils. Plead to the case and get five years instead of rolling the dice, go to trial, and if he were to be found guilty 
and the likelihood his trial judge was going to throw the book at him. He would have been looking at the inside of a prison cell for the next four decades, more than three times the number of years he'd even been alive. And we may find ourselves divided on this too, dreamers. Our opinions on his decision to plea out. Some of us might say, never in a million years would you plea no contest to a crime that you are truly innocent of. Some might say you'd do the same thing if you were a young black man in America. The plea bargain is a conviction machine when it comes to cases like this against young men like Brian who don't stand a chance in a justice structure that has historically and systematically targeted his very demographic. A plea deal is especially effective in a case like his when the evidence is shaky, the case is built on the word of the accuser versus the word of the accused, and the defendant is looking at a mammoth of a jail sentence if he challenges the system by going to trial. Essentially, Brian's back was up against the wall. Because let's be real, five years is really nothing compared to 41. But still, admitting to guilt when one is truly innocent goes against every instinct in every one of us. But Brian's instinct told him that this was the best decision. So, when it comes to Winetta... Brian decided that this might be a chance for him to get something out of this meeting. Almost immediately, the thought popped into his mind. What if he can get her to admit what he had been claiming all of these years? That their schoolyard encounter nine years earlier was a consensual one. Both of them willingly engaged in the intimate activity that did not involve sexual intercourse. Then maybe he might finally have the chance to clear his name, right? Well, right after the initial shock of seeing Winetta's friend request, Brian all but dropped to his knees and prayed for the strength and ability to handle the situation properly. This was his chance right here and right now, and he was probably never going to get another one. And on the flip side of that, it could backfire on him. She could possibly double down on her accusations that he did what she said he did, end of story. Either way, Brian would not be any worse off, so he went for it. He agreed to meet with Winita, but he was going prepared. Brian had a friend whose dad was a private investigator, and of course they are experts in their work when it comes to surveilling people. So Brian scheduled a meeting with Winetta, he chose the location, and prior to going there, he had his private investigator friend set up hidden cameras to capture the meeting on audio and video. Brian wasn't sure whether or not Winetta would show up, if maybe she would change her mind at the last minute and back out, then he probably wasn't going to get another chance. But she did. She showed up. Much to Brian's surprise and relief, and he had gone through so much to get to this point. His accuser had actually made herself available to him after all these years. So what was his plan to catch her in the audio and video confession? Well, he was going to ask her for help in getting him exonerated. And this is what she said. 
I mean, I will go through with helping you, but at the same time, all that money they gave us, I mean, gave me, I'm not going to give it back. That would take a long time. And that's basically all that he got in the first interview. She admitted not wanting to give the money back that she was awarded in her settlement for the lawsuit that she filed against the school, but that wasn't going to be quite enough. They wanted to try for a second time, so maybe they could get the actual words to come out of her mouth that she made up this entire story. Brian asked her if they could meet for a second time, and this time he wanted his private investigator to speak to her, though it's unclear who he presented himself to be to Juanita, if he told her that he was an investigator or what, but she agreed to the second meeting, and this one too was videotaped, and it took place at the same location they had set up for the first meeting. But this time, only Juanita can be seen on camera. The investigator questioning her off to the right is out of view of the cameras. He said to her, He's accused of rape. He's accused of kidnapping. She responded, A lot of stuff. He said, Yeah, and I just need to hear from you that those things, I'll put it all in the piece of paper and I'll meet with you and we'll go from there. And she asked, Do you want me to say it now? Did he rape you? No. He did not rape me. Did he kidnap you? No. And there it was, the truth. Finally, after all these years, Winetta finally came forward with it. Brian had not kidnapped and raped her that day. Winetta made up the whole thing. Once he heard those words come from her mouth, he could not wait to get up and out of that room. He knew that moment, like the last moment he had with Winetta, would be life-changing again, but this time for the better. But the one thing Winetta remained steadfast about was this. She would not speak to prosecutors and admit that she lied and made up the entire story. And that's because, of course, she would have to repay the $750,000 settlement she received. She also expressed her concerns as to how all of this would affect her family, meaning her relationship with her children. Because she had two kids, and they were young, and she did not have custody of them. So let's stop here for a moment and ruminate about Winetta and how we feel about her. Okay, she lied about being raped, and with that false accusation... She single-handedly destroyed Brian's entire future. He was never going to play football. He was never going to be able to find a decent job with that kind of a conviction on his record. And he was forever going to have to register as a sex offender, which meant he was going to be forced to stay away from any public place where children congregate. Meaning, if he ever had children of his own, he'd never be able to take them to school. He'd never be able to attend any school activities, sports, birthday parties, parks. He'd be banned from Disneyland, foreign travel. He wasn't even supposed to have any social media accounts. Some sex offenders aren't even allowed to have internet access. 
So yeah, his life was deeply impacted because of Winetta. It doesn't exactly make her out to be the most sympathetic person. She did an awful thing to Brian. And for me, it's unforgivable. If something like this happened to me, I'd be filled with resentment for the rest of my life. Though I can't say for sure how I'd feel towards a person making false accusations because I've not experienced anything like this, but I really think I would hate the person. And as much as I hate what Winetta did to Brian, there is that part of me and probably several of us who are grateful that the guilt weighed heavily on her enough for her to finally reach out to Brian to try and make things right. Though not guilty enough to want to go to the prosecution and admit her wrongdoing and begin the process of paying back the money that she was wrongly awarded. She stopped short of that. But still, she didn't have to come forward. She could have just as easily gone on with her life and she would have never crossed paths with Brian or ever have to worry or think about him again. But it obviously ate away at her and there's something to be said for that. She didn't have to do this, but she did. As the space and time between Brian's arrest and Winetta finally coming clean grew, as each passing year came and went, I can imagine thoughts of Brian popping into Winetta's mind, probably pretty regularly. $750,000 is a lot of money for a kid and her family. And did her family know or realize that Winetta had been lying all this time? I'm not sure. It's not clear who, if anybody knew, that the accusations she had made against Brian were false. So every time she spent any part of her settlement money, she did so knowing that she was spending money gained from Brian's false imprisonment. Brian's rotting away in jail and she's out and about, free to do as she pleased, with the means to do so. I wonder how much it bothered her. How long it took for her to finally be unable to look at herself in the mirror. And we have to wonder because she has not spoken publicly about it. And dreamers, if you are feeling as though I'm being measured in what I'm saying here about Winetta, you're not wrong. I mean, make no mistake, I hate what she did. I really, really hate it. But those feelings are tempered with the fact that she finally came forward and helped Brian clear his name. It was long, long overdue, and he had served his time. He had his ankle monitor still on when he had that faithful meeting with Winetta. His future prospects were bleak, as he was still looking for work when her friend request appeared on his Facebook. Yeah, Brian was out of prison, but in many ways, he was never really going to be free. And Winetta gave that back to him, and I'm grateful for that even though it took way too long to get there. I hate to say better late than never, but this is a case where she had the choice to take her secrets to the grave or lay it all out to bear, and she finally chose right. And another thing that's holding me back on this is that we really don't know why she did what she did 
What is it that caused her to walk away from Brian that day at school after they had been kissing and becoming close that led her to pass that note on to a friend that said he had raped her and that she was no longer a virgin? She has never explained why to Brian or to anybody. Why? Why would she want to hurt him in this way? I have no idea. We just don't know what was going on with her. What could have led this young lady to come up with something like this seemingly out of the blue against a guy she appeared to like? Maybe there was some jealousy? Maybe he was sort of casually dating an assortment of girls? Maybe she wanted the attention? Maybe she didn't think things would go as far as they did? Maybe it was meant to be a secret that she wanted to share with the recipient of the note and that person is the one who went to the school administration. Maybe when Netta was struggling with something going on in another aspect of her life, maybe something was going on at home. Maybe there were some abuse issues. Maybe she was struggling with some emotional instability or mental health issues. Or maybe there is no meaningful reason why because none of it makes any sense. Maybe Winetta herself struggles with why. Whatever the case is, as far as I've read and looking into this case, there isn't anything Brian had been able to point to that gave him any kind of insight or understanding as to why Winetta did what she did. But there is a movie coming out, I believe this week, that's going to be telling Brian's story. And maybe the movie will be able to answer some of the questions for us. But because of Brian's involvement in the film, you're going to get a much deeper look into his life and what he went through in this decade-long ordeal. Also, there was a reason given sometime later by the recipient of Juanetta's note, and I will touch on that a little bit later. Before Brian was able to get Winetta's confession on videotape that the accusations she made against him back in 2002 were false, he had reached out to the California Innocence Project, and I believe this was after he had served his time, he began pursuing the possibility of seeking a full exoneration, though he could have begun looking into it from prison as the Innocence Project was formed in 1999, and it is run by San Diego's Western School of Law. They review about 2,000 cases a year, and the criteria for a case to be taken on is very specific. There has to be information, evidence, or DNA to be scrutinized with new technology in order for the case to be considered for the Innocence Project. There really has to be strong evidence of factual innocence for the investigation to be launched, and the legwork, re-interviewing witnesses, visiting crime scenes, examining new evidence, filing motions, securing experts, all of that stuff is done by select law students in conjunction with Innocence Project staff attorneys. Well, at first, the Innocence Project concluded there was not enough evidence pointing to Brian's innocence for them to take on his case. But once he had the confession videotape, they decided to take on Brian's case, making his the first one they would investigate that involved the wrongly convicted having already been released from prison. All the previous cases before involved people still incarcerated. 
There was going to be a problem from the onset, however. The videotape would not be admissible as evidence. And the reason for that is because it was made without Winetta's knowledge or permission, nor did Brian or his investigator obtain a written and signed confession from her either. So they were going to have to build their own case without the video evidence. And the Innocence Project investigators would go on to compile other evidence aside from the video to corroborate Brian's claims of innocence, starting with the lack of DNA. No male DNA was found on Winetta's underwear, which there should have been based on the claims that she had been making. Also, going back to the friend who Winetta wrote that note to, saying that she was raped, when the Innocence Project investigator spoke to that friend, she told them that sometime later on, Winetta admitted to her that she made up the whole story so her mom wouldn't find out that she was sexually active. That seems like a super extreme measure to go to in order to cover up sexual activity. But you know, we are talking about teenagers here. They are very capable of doing thoughtless things like this. Maybe Winetta did not understand the gravity of what she was doing. And she never explained this to Brian or anyone other than this friend that we know of. So take this explanation however which way you want. I also don't fully understand why this friend did not come forward with this information as soon as Winetta admitted she made up the whole story. I mean, I get it. Nobody wants to be a snitch. Whatever. It's just incredible how even if it was just one or two people who knew that Brian was sitting in jail for something that he did not do, chose to keep quiet. Then nobody ever stood up for him and said this is wrong. Because we know that there were maybe at least two people, perhaps even more, that knew Winetta was lying and looked the other way. How are people okay with this? In the end, it all came down to Winetta, and her word was taken at face value. And then it also gets you thinking... Exactly how confident was the district attorney and the prosecutor in their case against Brian in the first place? They had nothing to corroborate Winetta's claims. No evidence, coupled with the evolving statements on her part. These are not stupid people. They are college-educated attorneys. We've seen many a district attorney over the years choose not to file charges because of a lack of evidence because of a fear of losing. Many times, these people, while the intentions may be on the up and up, the fact is that every single case that the DA files and every single case that the prosecutor takes to trial, every one of them is a career move. I'm not saying that they're not there to advocate for justice and victims and survivors and their families, but what I am saying, sometimes... When they get their teeth sunk into a case, when things begin to come apart at the seams, when evidence doesn't exactly fit the way they had hoped it would, when it begins to feel as though they might lose, what are their options? They can backtrack. They could drop the charges and possibly refile later if other things come to light. But in doing so, 
A big part of that means that they would have to admit to making mistakes, possibly even have to acknowledge that they were wrong. And how many times have we seen law enforcement, district attorneys, and prosecutors in interviews discussing a case that they were involved in that was overturned because they messed up? They arrested, charged, convicted, and sent to prison the wrong person. I've seen those involved in the prosecution say they still believe the guilt of the exonerated because they just don't want to admit that they made a mistake. Now granted, I've seen some admit to their mistakes, but some of them will not budge no matter how much evidence points to innocence. They just can't do it. And maybe that was a thing going on in Brian's case. Maybe they just didn't want to end up with egg on their face. It's an embarrassment to have to announce that they've dropped charges because they believed what the alleged victim was saying at first, but now they don't. And then they're going to have to let a potential rapist back out into the community as a result. And what about Winetta? If she was truly brutalized by this guy, they're letting her down as well. So instead of going where the evidence took them, they went ahead with the prosecution to avoid having to roll back on their case, all the while knowing that the fact that Brian was a young, large, black teenager would be stacked against him. They were going to win because the system is slanted in their favor. And a win looks good on their record. They get justice for the alleged victim. They've got a rapist off the streets. It's a win all around for authorities, the district attorney, and the prosecutor. They come out the other end smelling like roses. They had the choice. Follow the evidence and realize there wasn't any? Only Winetta's questionable and inconsistent statements? Or bully Brian and his attorney into a plea deal? This is only my opinion, but it sounds like the possibility of an overzealous prosecution office that wanted to notch up another victory. So with the information the Innocence Project was able to compile, along with the taped confession, they approached the DA. They reviewed the new evidence, and they brought Winetta in and spoke to her in person, and they agreed. Brian Banks needed to be exonerated. They filed a motion to dismiss and went before a judge to make the recommendation. And it didn't take long. The judge was easily convinced and accepted the people's motion to dismiss all charges against Brian. The decade-long saga was over. Finally. Brian Banks was completely free and clear of all charges. He was no longer a convicted rapist. He was no longer to be made to register as a sex offender. And he would no longer be forced to be bound to that electronic ankle device. He went home, and one of the first things he did was take a pair of scissors to his ankle monitor and finally took it off. The moment in court when Brian was declared an innocent man was captured on courtroom cameras. His head dropped onto the defendant's table. He just collapsed and cried. It was truly a powerful and beautiful moment to see, and you can find it on YouTube if you'd like to see for yourself. And when he finally came outside to the front of the courthouse, Brian and his attorney 
raise their arms in victory. In speaking to the media, Brian did express his hopes to someday be able to play professional football, which he will, and I'll get into that in a little bit. And a representative from the DA's office announced their motion and the court's decision to the media by saying, It is not our job to maintain a conviction at any cost. It's our job to do justice. We believe the recantations of the witness. We do not believe Mr. Banks did the crime that he pleaded guilty to, and justice has been served. The DA's office did say they did not have plans to pursue any criminal charges against Juanetta, deciding that it was going to be too hard to prove. And there are other issues surrounding that, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And besides that, not only would the videotaped confession not be admissible in court, Winetta began rolling back on her recantation. Brian has also said he had no desire for the DA's office to go after her either. In a May 2012 Los Angeles Times article, the potential for a case against Winetta was explained. Once Brian was exonerated, the focus of this case suddenly shifted towards Winetta. She was a sophomore when she made her accusation against Brian and subsequently received settlement money. The representatives from the Innocence Project stated that neither they nor Brian had any intentions of pursuing legal actions against Winetta, mainly because Brian wants to move on from this. They were planning to file a claim against the state of California for $100 per day that he was wrongfully incarcerated, which he is entitled to under state law, and he was incarcerated for 1,888 days, give or take. It was also thought it would be very difficult for the school district and their insurance carrier to get the settlement money paid out to Winetta back. And this is due largely in part because of the circumstances of Winetta's life and the direction it ultimately went. At the time, Winetta had two children who were ages four and five years old, and she was receiving public assistance. But from what I read, it does not appear that Winetta had primary custody of her children because she was the one being sought for child support, which is why her financial situation is on record with the county who attempted to collect support from her. She had been ordered to pay $600 a month and was unable to pay due to having no income or employment. And when it comes to the statute of limitations for making false claims such as Winetta did, well, it's four years, but there is a catch. When a crime that was previously hidden is found out, the statute can restart at the time the crime was discovered. So even though she made her accusation in 2002 and it wasn't discovered until almost 10 years later, a case against her could still be sought as it still fell within the limits and she could have been charged with perjury. What further complicated things was the fact that Winetta was a juvenile when she made the accusation as well as the fact that she recanted her recantation. Ultimately, she was not criminally charged but her actions would not go unpunished. On April 12, 2013, the school district announced its intentions to sue Juanetta to recoup the money that she was paid. On June 14, she was ordered by a Los Angeles Superior Court judge to pay $1.5 million 
plus an additional $1.1 million in fees. And as far as anyone knows, it does not seem the money has been collected for this judgment. Juanetta has not been seen or heard from, and she has failed to appear at any scheduled court hearings. So, a couple of days after Brian walked out of court, a free and clear and exonerated man, he received a phone call from someone from his past. Seattle Seahawks coach Pete Carroll. Coach Carroll had been the coach at USC who was interested in recruiting Brian back in high school. He was like, hey, you know any linebackers? And Brian was like, heck yeah, I do. And he was out there for some tryouts, but it was pretty clear that the time that had elapsed between 2002 and 2012 had diminished Brian's ability to move with speed and agility. He did have the opportunity for a few other tryouts with other NFL teams, including the Kansas City Chiefs, the San Diego Chargers, and the San Francisco 49ers, but none of those panned out. Brian did sign with the Las Vegas Locomotives, which was a team in the short-lived United Football League, or UFL for short. He played in two games until the league suspended operations mid-season that October. Brian did go on to sign with the Atlanta Falcons in April of 2013, and he joined the team's off-season workouts, organized team activities, and training camp. And he finally made his NFL debut with the Falcons. He played in their four preseason games, but was released before the start of regular season games on August 20th, 2013. The following year, in 2014, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell invited Brian to be a guest speaker at the NFL Draft Rookie Symposium. And it was a few weeks later that Commissioner Goodell reached out to Brian again and extended an offer to work for the executive office of the NFL in New York in their Department of Operations, which is where Brian is today. So, life is good once again. And Brian continues to work in conjunction with the Innocence Project, advocating for the exoneration of wrongfully convicted people. Juanetta Gibson's lie was very, very costly. The obvious ones, of course, were what it cost Brian. He was robbed of his final year of high school. The opportunity to enjoy everything a senior in high school playing on the varsity football team was taken away. No football games, no homecoming, no prom, no graduation. As everyone in Brian's graduating class moved forward with their school year, Brian sat in prison, accused of a rape he did not commit. He was 17 years old. Imagine the heartbreak for his mom, who dedicated her life to raising her boy, only to see him snatched up by the system, wrongfully, all because of one thoughtless girl's lie. Brian was robbed of his chance to play football at one of the best schools in the country, the University of Southern California, and not to mention robbed of all the college experiences that go along with that. 
He would have been given an education some could only dream of for free because of his talents, all of which withered away as he withered away in a cell for five years, all because of a lie. He was robbed of the opportunity for his talents to be showcased for the National Football League. He would have undoubtedly been sought after by many teams. He may have left USC early to enter into the draft to pursue a career with the NFL, which could have made him a multimillionaire the minute he signed his name on a contract. He may have stayed in college for the full four years and walked away with his degree in addition to going to the NFL. But all of that was taken from him because of a lie. Brian was robbed of five years of his life. He sat in a California state prison, cornered into accepting a plea deal out of fear of a biased justice system. Five years that Brian can never get back. And you never really know how precious your freedom is until it's taken from you, especially wrongfully. And Brian knows it all too well. And he was a kid when he went in, just a kid. While all his classmates and teammates were heading into adulthood, going on to their colleges or getting into the workforce, whatever they were doing, Brian sat in prison, frozen in time, because of a lie. But that very same lie was quite lucrative for the liar, Winetta. It was a lie that earned her $750,000, and from what it sounds like, it was quickly squandered. I don't know what she did with the money, but I do know this. None of it was used for what it was intended a way of helping survivors of rape move forward with the trauma. No amount of money can take the place of what is taken from a woman when she is raped, but it helps. When she can't work because she can't get out of bed because she's traumatized and doesn't have the energy or the will because she's numb, because her sense of security is destroyed. Her sense of self-worth is non-existent. She can't trust. She can't think. She can't drive. She can't eat. She can't sleep. She can't be because she was raped. The money will, at the very least, keep the bills paid because she just can't do it. And the hope is someday she will be able to pick up the pieces of her shattered life and get back to some sense of normalcy and feeling human again. Maybe that's what the money is for. None of this is Juanetta. She was not a victim. She was not a survivor. She is a liar. Juanetta's lie was costly. It cost Brian. Thank goodness he's been able to move on from it and rise above it. Thank goodness he was able to, at least in a small capacity, play at linebacker in the NFL, something he probably never thought he would ever be able to do. Thank goodness Commissioner Goodell, who was largely a very unpopular man, due in part to the punishments, or lack of punishments as it were, that he's doled out 
when players in his league have been charged or caught on video committing acts of domestic violence or sexual violence against women. Thank goodness Commissioner Goodell had the compassion to reach out to Brian when it became clear that he wasn't going to make it on the field, so he brought him into the offices instead. Aside from that, what amount of money could be given to Brian to make up for what he lost? Right now he's good, I'm sure, and for that I'm happy. But what about his pain and his suffering all those years that he lost in prison? Nothing's going to make that right. That is the cost of that lie. Winetta destroyed the course Brian's life should have gone. There is no compensation big enough. There just isn't. And of course, the school and its insurers lost. It cost them by way of the $750,000 they paid Winetta for her lie. It was costly. They've got their judgment against her. Though, will they ever be able to recoup? Probably not. But no matter where Winetta goes, she'll likely never be able to dig herself out of the hole her lie dug for her. Costly indeed. But there's more. The cost of Winetta's lie has a ripple effect. And it would continue to be costly, costlier beyond anything we could imagine. It's going to cost the next woman who was raped and not believed. And the next. And the next. Because rape victims are unique in that sense. They often go into this nightmare with the presumption of being a liar. So what do they do? They remain silent. They don't report. Because they're afraid they're not going to be believed. Because of women like Winetta. Because Winetta disgustingly denied Brian his humanity with her gross, false accusations, she not only cost him his life, his freedom, his dignity, his life potential, she cost every single real victim of rape to have their voices heard. They get lost in the mire of her lie. They are silenced because of her lie. And what's even more scary is their attackers, their real attackers, go unpunished, free to go on to potentially commit rape again and again, because now they know they can do so with impunity, even more emboldened than before. How many victims of rape out there chose not to come forward because they were afraid they wouldn't be believed because women like Winetta set the tone? We will never know. And for every single woman who remains silent, you know what that means. There was another rapist out there walking among us. And Winetta will be used as a prime example, as proof that women lie when they claim that they've been raped. And to compound the issue is the fact that there really are no repercussions for lying about being raped or filing false reports. Oftentimes there needs to be a pattern of behavior or prior incidents. But making policies regarding filing false claims of rape may cause even less victims to want to come forward and not only just out of fear of not being believed, but also being made to face the real possibility of being prosecuted because you are thought to be lying. 
If a woman can't prove she was truly raped, she could be made to serve time herself as a result of being charged with filing false reports. Serving time for telling their truth by not being believed. When Netta did that, she has cost every single one of us. Her lie is so immense and its implications are so far-reaching. It continues to throw up barriers in the way of every real victim out there. Costly. Very, very costly. Every 92 seconds, another person experiences a sexual assault in the United States. Every 92 seconds. We are all affected by this because the chances are someone you know, love, and care about has been assaulted. It could have even been you. While the numbers of assaults have been dropping in the last two decades, the numbers of rapists who end up in prison is abysmal. Five out of every thousand will ever see the inside of a prison cell. That's it. Surviving a sexual assault feels so lonely, especially if you choose not to tell anyone. But you are not alone. Trust me, you're not. And I think you know this now more than ever before. Help is so close by. You can go to RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org. It stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. You can go there and get on a live chat with trained crisis counselors. You don't have to provide your identity. You don't have to give your name or any information, and nothing you say is ever recorded. And you can also call 800-656-HOPE to speak to someone who can help you. And there are also links that can direct you to resources and providers in your local area. And of course, I don't want to say that our Facebook group is the first place you should go for support. But I do know this for a fact. It is a safe place. Nobody in our group has ever been anything but supportive, understanding, and non-judgmental when one of us has a shared personal story or traumatic event. I've openly shared about my family, and for me, it quickly became a very unlonely place when people came and told me, me too. We are not experts, although there might actually be some around, but we are human, and we have compassion, and we care, and I'm confident when I say this. And I know I love my group. They're my people, and I love them with all my heart. And I know that many of them are you. And that brings this 102nd episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, 
other news events, TV shows we enjoy, documentaries that we've watched, books that we've read, whatever you find that you would like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And this week, I would like to wish a happy birthday to Monica P. on August 8th, Kelly V. on the 9th, my daughter Evelyn on the 10th, Sarah S. and Lisa Artist on Instagram, both on the 12th, and on the 14th is Tammy H. and Marina S. is on the 16th. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am so proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and talented hosts, So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and there you can find links to all of the shows on our network, our merchandise store, where you can find all the California Dreaming stuff and there are some new designs that we've just uploaded. So take a look and get your t-shirt or your mug, take a picture and post it to our group or on Instagram for everybody to see. Or if you just want to email us with your feedback or comments or questions, That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And one last thing, the next couple of weeks are going to be a little bit busy. It's my daughter's birthday coming up, and we are also having company visit for a few days and staying with us. So it's going to cut into my time a little bit when it comes to writing and recording. I don't intend to miss any episodes. They just might be at different times or days. Okay, that's all. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.